Okay, this morning we have um, a panel of our fall speakers. So we have back with us Tracy Farrell. So you can come up as I call you to come up. And we also have Beth Plesnick, which I know I saw her. Yes. And then we have today with us Betsy Baird, and she is stepping in for Jen Stout, who wasn't able to be here today. So if you've been part of Moms by Grace, you have heard Betsy speak to us on several topics before. Um, she's married to Greg. I'm only introducing Betsy because I introduced the other ladies before. Um, she's married to Greg, and if you've been at FBC over the past couple of months, you know that her and um, that Betsy and Greg are actually involved in helping their son-in-law and daughter church plant in Long Beach. So they are, um, right now they're going back and forth, which is a lot. She got home at midnight last night, so have some grace on her. Um, right now they're going back and forth, but eventually they're going to be over there full time, which, and we're going to miss them terribly because for the past 20 years they have been very involved in FBC. And I think they've had their hand in every single ministry from children's to high school to facility care. So, so everything but music, she said. So. Oh, oh, so, okay. So. Okay, so we, do, we did get quite a few questions, um, so thank you for that. Um, we won't have time to get through them all. Um, I just wanted to remind you all that when we have a panel, um, it's kind of like a conversation. Betsy said it's kind of like a conversation with you. We're having a conversation with you. Some of the things that are said are preferences, but all of their preferences are based on biblical principles because they have raised their, or, and are raising their kids to love the Lord and they want their marriages to be godly. So as they're sharing with you, their preferences are based on biblical principles. So keep that in mind, even though it might be a preference. Um, um, so yeah, and I think we're ready to go. You guys ready? <laughs> All right. Okay, so um, Victoria, do you have their mics on? Yeah, yep. I think we're on. testing. Oh, there we go. Okay, perfect. Yay. Here we go. Okay. I'm going to start with, um, let's see. I'm like looking to see which one I put on here is number one. Um, Tracy, I'm going to, I'm going to address this to you. Okay. But anybody can jump in if they have a thought. So Tracy, the question was, my husband and I like, like to do our own home projects. I struggle, however, when he starts to make plans and then takes no action on them for several months or even a year or so. I see myself struggling with disappointment and then discontentment with talking but not the doing. What suggestions can you offer to help me with this? I can totally relate to this, for sure. Uh, my husband and I are also DIYers and also have zero time to be doing those things. Um, but my first gut response is, are you sure that he really likes doing home projects? And I think that's something, it might be that you like doing home projects, but does he really like doing home projects? 
or are those home projects really necessary? So I would challenge um, my perspective first. Um, if he actually does like it, then consider, does he have time for this? What's the season that he's going through? Um, let's see, maybe he's really swamped and he also needs some downtime, right? I think we just expect our husbands to come home from work and then just to be there at our disposal. And that's just not always practical. They need some time to themselves um, and some time to rest after work. Um, we also, oh yeah, I put on here and just to really actually care about him, right? He's not just there to be your handyman, um, but you want to be, you want him to come home and you want to really be able to care for him. And so for us, we ask each other to put that kind of stuff on our calendar, like with an actual date. And so like we make that like a date, that's our home project date. Um, we go to Lowe's together, we plan together, right? And we do that project together. Um, and I think that's really helped us. We also have a planning meeting uh, once a month where we sit and it's not a date, <laughs> um, but we sit with our calendars, we sit with our finances, uh, we sit with our ministry schedule and we kind of work through, it's like a business meeting and we work through um, all of that together just to get on the same page. And during that time, we also go over our, what we call our honey-do list. Um, and that's when we look through all of our home projects and things that are coming up that need to be addressed at home. And we prioritize those. And then that gets put up on the fridge. And that way, when he's ready and available to do one of those projects, maybe it's not on the calendar, then he can go and just be like, oh, okay, that needs to get done. And he really likes to visually be able to see that in a place that's easy for him to remember because we're at home all day and it's right in front of our face, right? That like this needs to get done. They're not home all day and they forget. And so making it really visible um, for them to see. And I just put, you have to communicate about it. And that's what that business meeting is all about. And then lastly, I just said, cherish your husband. Um, you want your home to be a haven that he wants to come home to, not another place where he has to work all the time. Well, Beth, you've been in that season for a long time where you guys have a lot of home projects. But um, yeah, <laughs> uh, let's see. Oh, and lastly, just super practical. I said, learn to do some things on your own. <laughs> um, my husband's super busy guy and I always just thought, I don't wanna use power tools. The only thing I don't do is I don't mow the lawn. But other than that, um, I've really learned to do a lot of things by myself. Nikki, why are you laughing? <laughs> Are you laughing at me? She knows probably that I'm psycho. But um, yeah, I'm just amazed at what I could actually do by myself. So actually become more handy and more hands-on. And then if he gets to join in with you, that's like an added bonus. Do you have anything to add? That was fabulous. <laughs> Biblical principles, communication, and patience. So yeah. communicate beforehand, set the scope of the project, set time frames get yeah. counsel, look at all the steps involved, make sure you're able to do it. Yeah. And the Plesniks have done all of those projects before, so you guys can just go to them. We're being very sanctified. <laughs> <laughs> One new thing that we... You guys can hear me. Just, you gotta put it right. Yeah, ice cream cone. Okay, <laughs> don't want to mess up my makeup, though. <laughs> just kidding. Um, one thing that we've just kind of learned, because we keep learning as our life continues is um, Greg's been asking a friend or and this is part of you know when he started not feeling well 
he has friends come over from church and it's kind of like a, a ministry buddy discipleship time. And he's had um, some of the younger guys um, come help him with yard work. And I think Chris Morlock came and helped him hang up a barn door. And so that's helped. And I can, you know, kind of give him like, maybe someone could help you or, you know. Yeah. But also I've had to let things go and just say, well, we might not have the new Christmas lights this year that I'd hoped, but maybe next year. And in the end, it really doesn't. Some of those things don't matter as much as in the moment I thought they would. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny as you get older, all the things that you thought was so important that aren't really aren't. So, so that's good. And I love the meeting, having a meeting and communicating. Yeah. Like that's that's great. If that's the only thing you get from from that, from that. then that'd be perfect. Yeah, and I was really not on board with that to begin with because I was like, that's so annoying that we have to sit for like two hours and talk about all that. But it was so it helped so much just yeah. for us to be able to communicate and to not do it on a date because a lot of times our date was would become consumed with that. And they just wouldn't be fun. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it really helped. And if you have multiple projects going, put them in order and don't start a new one. Oh. <laughs> That's good advice. <laughs> then you won't have multiple unfinished projects. <laughs> oh, I love that. Okay, Beth. Um, so I've been having a hard time making my husband a priority because I struggle with mom guilt. I grew up in a broken home with a mom never around. So how can I spend quality time with my husband without feeling guilty um, not being with the kids? Well, I read that and I thought, praise the Lord for the change that he's brought in one generation that you're raising your kids to, to want to fear the Lord. Um, I'd say really it just comes down to, am I trusting God's truth about my relationship priorities? Because it says four times in scripture that you're one flesh with your husband. You know, Genesis 2, and then it's requoted, Matthew 19, Mark 10, Ephesians 5. You're not one flesh with your children. Um, children do have a special relationship. You know, Psalms 127 says children are a gift from the Lord and a reward but then it says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. So children are a reward and a blessing, but you're not one flesh with them. And what do you do with arrows? You shoot them, and they're, they're going to be gone. Um, so it's, that's also Genesis 2. You're going to leave and cleave someday. Um, so the biblical reality is that you and your husband are one, and your children are for a season. And you do want to invest in both, but you want to have that perspective on the long-term relationship, that at the end of the 18 years, you and your husband have something that you've invested in and that you've built up. So practically, what does that mean? It means talk with your husband about your guilt and your feelings, and together establish some ways that you're going to invest in that marriage relationship um, and then just rejoice that you also enjoy your kids too, but make sure the husband is a priority. I love that. Communication is key. Are you hearing that? <laughs> um, Betsy, um, how about a husband who struggles with harshness as he works with the children? How can we as wives help them? So I'm going to start by defending dads a little bit. Because I think it's maybe a, a time to step back and look and say, um, are we sure it's harshness? Or maybe your husband is simply using 
a masculine and authoritative voice. And it's, it is important for kids to hear a man voice and not sound like you. So let dad be dad <laughs> and not a feminized version of himself. And I also think for language development, it's important for them to hear grown-up voices and not baby talk all the time. Um, right, Melissa? Where is she? Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, also, make sure you're trusting your husband's parenting. And this can be hard because we're with our kids all day, so it's easy to see ourselves as more of an expert, like, that's not the way I would have said it, or that's not the decision I would have made. But it doesn't mean you're always right. And there were many times I had to bite my tongue. I didn't always, but I needed to when Greg was disciplining when maybe I wouldn't have. But looking back on it, he was usually right. I also was so protective, I wouldn't have let my kids ever learn how to ski or climb fences or climb trees or anything like that. So I had to let Greg be the dad, right? And not make him a version of myself. So your instinct to protect your husband can, I'm sorry, your instinct to protect your kids can cloud your judgment of what's going on. So um, a really good tip is like to watch other people's parenting, spend time with other families, ask your mentor moms, and see kind of um, if you're judging this correctly. And sometimes uh, man, men can raise their voice and not be angry. Is he being stern? It doesn't mean it's harshness. But sometimes husbands are harsh and impatient. And the Bible says this is wrong, Ephesians 6. Do not provoke your kids. In Matthew 19, we read that Jesus was gentle and, t- and kind with the children. And also Proverbs 15:1, a soft answer turns away wrath, right? So harshness can be hard to define. And I think we might all have a different definition of it. But I would say, and this is, would love to get some other input, is it rooted in anger and impatience and often unrealistic expectations. Um, also, harshness can be a missed opportunity to parent and have that you ruin that teachable moment with your kids by being harsh and angry. So like Don just said, it's important to have established good communication and those helpful conversations about each other's parenting. So here's the big question is, do you have those times where you talk about parenting? Like Tracy said, you have the business meeting about the jobs around the house, but do you have sort of a business meeting about your parenting where you can be open with each other? So start establishing those if you haven't already. And uh, when you need to bring this or something else up, it's important to see that you're on the same team. And it's not like you and the kids over here and he's over here doing it wrong. So, you know, make sure that he understands that you're working together and that you're on his side so he doesn't feel like an outsider. So some things to explore, I think, is in those conversations is what kind of parenting did he have? What's his story? Did he have a dad who used a loud and angry voice? Some families are that way. Some families are super quiet. They never raise their voice. Some families yell a lot, and maybe they're not angry or harsh, and that's normal to them, so it's good to look at that. Or some, uh, some of us didn't, some of you, not me, didn't grow up without a dad, and that was what was true for Greg. He didn't have a dad in the home. Uh, his parents divorced when he was a baby. And so he sounded more like a coach when our kids were little. It was like teamwork, like, come on, guys, let's all line up. And like, he would use that terminology because he was in sports a lot. So that's kind of the men in his life were his coaches. And so... Um, Anyway, like I said, spend time with other parents and hear it and have established those helpful conversations where you can talk about these things. That's great. Thank you.
Thank you. Okay, so just so that our panel knows, I'm gonna ask three discipline questions, which were geared towards all of you. And they're, I felt like they kind of went together, so um, I'm gonna throw them out here. So can you give us examples of age-appropriate consequences first? And then along with that, like maybe you can include what age is appropriate to spank, like starting to spank, and maybe even no longer spanking. Like what age should we be done with spanking? And then also um, maybe you can address what requires spanking, like direct defiance, what that looks like, so. Okay, well, I'll start. Okay. <laughs> um, I think kind of a rule of thumb, it's flexible, but around somewhere between 12 and 15 months, maybe a little earlier, when your kids understand you and you know they understand you, but they're defiant, you tell them to do something and they don't do it, that would be a time to start disciplining, um, either with spanking, and I know you guys have probably talked about that and what that looks like. We haven't that okay. much this okay. year. Okay, that's a whole, we could do a whole so, session yeah. on that. So yeah. <laughs> instructing a child's heart by Ted Tripp is a good one, and training, what's the other book that he wrote with Margie, his wife? I have it in here somewhere. Anyway, talks ex exactly about how to, how to spank, and, um, and I think on the other side of it, I think around six or eight um, would be years old. You wouldn't be spanking anymore. And he talks about, Ted Tripp talks about this, is the point of spanking is you're inflicting some pain, right? Not injuring them, but they know that they've been disciplined. And as your kids get older, the amount of force you have to use to cause pain is really too much as their bodies get older. So that's when you would begin to shift to other kinds of discipline. Yeah, I think uh, whenever there's a direct command that they're not obeying, first time obedience is really important. Um, that's when we would spank. Ours started around nine months, but just on the hand at first. And I had very sensitive girls, so I literally didn't have to hardly spank their hand and they would just stare at it like, be ruined forever and be in a puddle. It's not always like that for every kid. Some parents are earlier having to use more of the bottom and bare skin just because they're not getting like that little painful reaction. You need that, right? If you're not spanking hard enough to have it be a little bit painful, they're not going to understand yeah. that it's an actual consequence. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I do agree with Betsy too that right around between, I, I've noticed it around seven, so I would say six to eight you're spanking a lot less if you're actually really diligent in the beginning. I know in the beginning it feels like it's so often and you just think, is this ever gonna end? And I, it, it does. If you're faithful and consistent, they will understand first-time obedience very clearly. And then I actually, the last time I spanked Zoe, she was 11 and actually both of us were laughing. <laughs> Because I don't even remember the offense, but it was such an offense that I was like, that's it, like up to your room. We're having a spanking, which I hadn't spanked her in a long time. And I couldn't hurt her. And we were like both just laughing. And I just said, do you see how ridiculous what your sin has caused for us to have to go to this degree? And she's like, I'm so sorry, that's so dumb. Like, so for me it was, but I think I 
finished earlier or stopped earlier with Haley because I realized that's silly. <laughs> 11 was really silly. So I, like they've said, any command that you give that they don't obey. But then I, I want to put in, so be really careful and deliberate what commands you give um, because you need to then follow through on what you said, that if you give a command and then don't expect that they're actually going to do it, that's really confusing to them. And you're, you're setting yourself up for a long road of training them to do um, what you say. I just for example, I remember I had a kid that like, I'd ask them to put on their shoes and they wouldn't put on their shoes. And they weren't being defiant, like, I'm not putting on my shoes, woman. But they, they just would, they're the master of distraction and they, their shoes would not end up on their feet. And I remember I would think, am I seriously going to discipline my kid because they didn't put on their shoes? And I'd have to remind myself, no, I am disciplining my kid because they did not obey when I gave them a direct command. So I also had to watch how I said things. I found that I gave suggestions. If I say, hey, it's time to put on your shoes, I did not tell my child to do anything. But if I say, hey, go put on your shoes, sweetie, I was still nice, but I, I gave them a direct command that then they needed to obey. So the other thing that, that you should expect obedience for is longstanding house rules and um, heart, like heart um, condition, like no complaining. So if you've talked about no complaining and you've instructed on that and it's been in your Bible study time, then there becomes a point pretty soon on when, when they complain, Hunt, that's a disobey, let's go meet in the bathroom. And you're not instructing them, but you've taught them that you're not supposed to complain. So you're gonna um, just say, well, we do everything without complaining and arguing and let's go take care of that. Um, or then house rules too. If, if you have a rule that your kid can't eat in their bed and they're in their bed with a bowl of cereal, if that is a house rule for you, then, then that's a disobey because they know they're not supposed to do that. And, there, if, oh, sorry. and if they're hiding the bowl of cereal under the covers, then that's a double disobey because they're lying about it with their actions. <laughs> My kids aren't as quick as Tracy's. <laughs> Mine are just not as creative. <laughs> so we did use other kinds of consequences besides spanking because there's things, there's discipline opportunities that aren't as a result of direct disobedience. Um, they can be wise, unwise or um, selfish. And so those are times when we would use natural consequences. Like if you made a giant mess with all the toy, you got out all the toys, that was not wise. Why did you get everything out and made a giant mess in your room? So instead of having dessert tonight, you had to go clean your room. So that kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, I think at a certain age teaches a valuable lesson that is, is natural. Like if you do something unwise or selfish, you fix it. Yeah. yeah, and as they get older, there are a lot of more natural consequences, I think, that just happen with their interactions with friends at school or just things like that, that you don't always have to say, well, that was a disobedience and spank them. They've already actually learned that that was wrong because of just the natural consequences. Yeah. And then is there three and four and five also making restitution when they've wronged somebody else? So if they've sinned against someone, they need to go apologize and make it right, but then sometimes do something to make it right. Like, if they stole some of their siblings' Halloween candy, they don't just go say, sorry, I stole your candy. They should then offer their whole candy for their sibling to choose something out of or something that you've made up to where you're gonna teach their heart 
to do the opposite of the sin they just committed. You're going to put off by apologizing and put on by doing the right thing. Oh, so to, to toss in a, a Proverbs, write down Proverbs 29:15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And it's both the rod and the reproof that you discipline and you're reproving them, you're instructing them in the right way. Proverbs 29:15. Uh, um, and just thinking about the rod of instruction, we do have a few left if you are looking for one. You can let your mentor mom know, and we'll get you one. <laughs> or you can borrow mine. I'm done with it. <laughs> oh. um, okay, I just want to throw out one more. We had one more specific under the discipline, and it kind of goes with this. It's about a child who's been walking for several months and is just over a year. Is that too young to learn to stop at corners or curbs? And can you give some suggestions for just over a year for first-time obedience, like what would be required? I think I would always hold a one-year-old's hand outside. <laughs> Don't let your one-year-old wander around outside headed toward at, the corner. <laughs> I would practice that in the, in the home or at Target. If you want to do something outside your home. Mm -hmm. or so I think house. I gave that as an example in my talk. Was that true? I think I gave that, a, but I didn't say one years old. Not one so, years old. So are you listening to stroller? I didn't actually let my kids walk around out on the front yard at one. Like I always have them strapped into the stroller because I'm... I'm thinking maybe at church, like maybe they're coming out of church and, you know, there is the curb. I don't know. That was what was in my head when I read that. Um, so I think it's never too early to just actually start to give them wisdom in that way. They can understand way more than we give them credit for. Um, I think because when they're nonverbal, it's really hard to know if they're really understanding. But once you start instructing them and giving them the same consistent um, commands or wisdom, like they, they get used to that and really do understand more than um, they're letting on sometimes. So I would definitely start using the words like, no, we stop at the corner, we wait for mom. But that's it, right? You don't go into a whole dissertation about why they shouldn't run into the street. We would practice like red light, green light style almost, yeah. like in our home, in our hall, like, and both come to mommy, because that's another thing you really want them to do right away. And when they come to you, then you hug them and you praise them and, you know, it's fun. And then you'd also, you'd send them away and you'd be like, stop. And you want them to like freeze right away. And so you can kind of make it a game, but we found that really helpful to just practice at home and then use that when we're out. Yeah, we definitely did that back and forth at night. Like, come to daddy, come to mommy. And they would actually, like Sean would spank them if they didn't come to him or come to me. I always felt really bad. But he was right. Like that was a really, they got it really quickly. So that would be an example of your husband. You feel like he's being harsh. Oh yeah, but I felt like he, I could totally relate to, I felt like he was being harsh all the time. And I always felt like the only times you're home, you're spanking them. And I just felt like they're not gonna know that you love them. And honestly, he has the closest relationship with them. I think they love the boundaries. They know that he loves them, but he wasn't always harsh. And he was harsh, it seemed like, when he used a stern voice and then spanked them, but he always came back to talk with them and hold them and love them and give them really good hugs afterwards and restore right that relationship after the spankings. And honestly, 
he was right, 100%, and I'm glad that he didn't give in to me. Sounds great. Perfect. Anything else? Just, well, I'm going a little bit older, but once they were like two and three, we also did practice. Like we told them about the dangers of being in the street. And this maybe sounds weird, but I'd use little people and my kids thought it was hilarious where you have a person and they step out and I'd run them over with the car, but it helped them get it. And then we also, we also had a plan for just other dangerous situations that are common. Like what if you get lost in a store and so what should you do? You should find somebody with a tag or you should find another mommy. And because I just knew with one of my kids that was going to happen pretty often. So I wanted them to have a plan for what they were going to do. So we did do that as well. Her kids are so much more creative than mine. I love it. Oh, I love that. Okay, let's go back to husbands for a couple minutes. Um, Tracy, um, how do we handle husbands' expectations of us in our home that are not based on scripture? Which I didn't have any examples, so I'm not. Yeah, so there wasn't really examples on this one, so I'm going to just do my best. Um, just a reminder that our homes are filled with preferences, um, and sometimes those preferences don't appear biblical, but kind of like what Dawn was saying, um, a lot of times there are biblical principles and wisdom that actually are driving those preferences. So just um, really communicate. It always comes back to communication. Um, but if you're having trouble with what your husband ex expects of you, then talk to him about it. Um, find out why that's a priority for him. Uh, we should want our husbands, I said just this in the last, I have the same answer for a lot of these, but we should want our husbands to come home and have our homes be a haven where they can recharge. Um, the demands outside our home are really weighty on them. And so if they like things in a particular way, try to meet those expectations. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You're very two different people, right, that like things two different ways that are trying to come together and live in a compromising, harmonious way. And so um, it's okay to prefer the way that they like to do things sometimes. Um, but talk about it if you're really struggling. Um, look at your time card, I said, and prioritize. I think as moms, we have a lot of mundane tasks that we're constantly doing. And we don't always just sit and think, am I prioritizing my time wisely? Am I giving too much time to one thing and not enough time to another? And maybe you're gonna be able to balance your schedule. I think sometimes when you come, like I remember working before, you really prioritize, right? Because you're out, out all day and when you come home, you have certain tasks that you have to get done. When you're at home all day, sometimes we think we don't need a schedule and I don't think that's right. I think it's really helpful to have a schedule and to really see where you're spending your time. Um, let's see what else I put on here. It's, I just put it speaks volumes to your husband about how much you love and care for him when you listen to what's important to him and then work to make it happen. Now, there needs to be a graciousness on his side of it as well, right? Because things happen with little ones and sometimes your whole schedule just goes kaputs, right? And you don't have control over that. But he also will see when you are trying um, to do your best to meet those demands in your home. Um, and I, I hope he would be gracious with you um, in that. We have to remember that a lot of times what speaks to our husband, the love language, is like actually making those things come to fruition, um, things that they like. If you're not good at what he wants you to do, then ask him to show you how to do it or help tell him to show me how you want it done and then do your best to do it that way. Or maybe if you're not an organized person 
are a tidy person and he really likes things tidy, ask him to help you up, help you get everything organized, and then you're going to work really hard to keep it that way. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have anything else on that one? I thought that was great. Okay. I think I I do know it can be hard when you have little ones in the home and it feels like people are demanding all day from you, like. We have to drop everything and take care of our kids all the time, and now your husband comes in and has more. Um, but remember what, what Beth talked about is really uh, you and your hub- husband's relationship should be the center of your life and the kids orbit around you guys. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I know, the struggle is real. It's hard. <laughs> but I, I think um, I used to ask Greg, like, okay, so in the morning I would say, what would you like me to get done today? Or what's something you, you know, want to see done around the house? And I would try to make those one or two things a priority. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a whole long list. It was just a couple of things. Yeah. They're pretty simple people normally. <laughs> make my lunch. <laughs> I know for us, like, right before Daddy came home, we would always have, like, okay, we're going to put all of our toys away. We're going to get ready for dinner. And then I just gave them a couple toys that they got to play with, not all the toys, Um, And just simple things like that. So it wasn't super chaotic um, when he came home. And also that like I was trying to make dinner. So we would do that right before I would go into all the dinner making just so that it felt like there was a little more peace and they had some quiet things to do while I was making dinner. I don't know if that's something more practical. I'm trying to remember back. It's been a while. Yeah. But yeah, I do remember we had the 30 minute cleanup time before Andre got home. So yeah, yeah. So Good, thank you. Um, Beth, uh, how do we encourage our husbands who might not be leading us in a biblical way? And maybe with that, you want to address having an unbelieving husband? Um, I think this question's coming out of Ephesians 5, where the husband's to lead his wife and care for her, and the wife is to submit to her husband and respect him. And our husbands will always be imperfect. And there's ways in every marriage where the husband could be a better leader. Um, But I think where we start is rather than evaluating our husbands, we should be asking, how leadable am I? Am I easy to lead? Or at at a men's Q&A, would your husband ask, how can I lead her when she doesn't submit to me or respect me? Um, So practically, if this is one of your struggles where you you feel like you want him to lead and he's not leading, um, do an inventory on your heart and your actions and really focus on being a supportive, loving, encouraging wife and decide that you are going to follow whatever direction he sets. You are going to try to follow that um, and be really leadable. Um, I think 1 Peter 4.8, um, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We need to love our husband and help cover over some of those weaknesses. Um, if you're married to an unbeliever, um, it's a, that's a difficult situation and it's not God's design. Um, I think when well, the question I was giving, it said, what if he wants you to do the discipline? Um, did, did you ask that? I didn't ask it, but let me, it. let me go back. Okay. And, um, it says, how do I relinquish leadership to my unbelieving husband who puts off leadership discipline to me? Um, I'm tired and feel like I have no help. So how can we help that um, wife who 
is now in a situation with an unbelieving husband who's not willing to discipline kids and yeah. do things that we expect from a husband who's mm-hmm. following the Lord. And, um, you know, it is a difficult situation. So, um, Can did I? you want to chip in? I was just going to say, I mean, First Peter 3 talks exactly about that, that wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. And that's exactly what Beth is talking about, is that you're willing to submit to them even if they don't always do things the same way and they don't always do it maybe what you would see as the biblical godly way. Um, and there's just such an entrusting to the Lord that I'm hoping that your relationship with the Lord is just getting deeper and deeper because he really is the one that you're relying on um, because like Beth said, it's, it's not the way God intended, but it's definitely not outside um, hope, right? And it's not outside his will for you. And so just be encouraged that, um, that the Lord is with you and draw closer and closer to him in order to like love your husband when he's just not lovable in that way and respect him. First Peter 3 goes on just to talk about loving and respecting uh, your husband in in all of your conduct too, and so that's it's just really that he would be one without a word. I think in in the many moments when you feel tired and discouraged that you're doing it on your own and you're not supposed to be doing on it on your own, he's supposed to be a team with you. That there may be a blessing in an unbelieving husband wanting you to do the discipline and stepping back because you can bring the gospel in. Um, as their ultimate solution in a way that your unbelieving husband just won't. You're going to connect their sin to a fear of the Lord in a way that he never would. Um, Because as we discipline our children, we're teaching them um, many things. I mean, we want to train them to obey and to submit their wills, but there's points that you get to when your child has a glimmer of realization that they actually will never perfectly obey. I mean, they're supposed to obey and they're just never going to make it. They're not good enough. And those are those sweet opportunities that then we have to point to Jesus as the real solution to our disobedience. Um, and, and that's Philippians 3.9, that we don't have a righteousness of our own that comes from following all the rules, but we have a righteousness that's found in Christ. Um, so yeah, for those unbelieving, um, the wives with unbelieving husbands, Um, consider being part of the unequally yoked. At FBC, there is an unequally yoked group of gals that that have unbelieving husbands or they're single moms and they face these unique situations and can support each other kind of in a unique way. Um, But there's a couple hidden blessings in taking over the discipline. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too about having, you know, your mentor moms and other women in your life that are encouraging you to submit and remember that um, we should submit in everything unless it goes against the word of God. Like there's not, there's really not a reason to not submit to our husband unless it goes against the word of God, whether he's a believer or unbeliever. So, um, so keep that in mind when you're thinking about, is this biblical or not? You know, Um, so Betsy, how can we grow in forgiveness when we sin against our husbands, 
um, this particular question said that it was easy for them to practice it with their kids, but difficult with their husbands. So, so what words of encouragement do you have for us? I think I'm going to answer this question by asking more questions. Is that okay? Perfect. <laughs> First, a comment. And I think that it doesn't take as much trust and vulnerability to seek forgiveness from your kids. Really, you hold all the cards when you're parenting your kids, right? Maybe just me, but... Um, so here are my questions. Are you battling pride and stubbornness? Why is it hard to seek forgiveness? Is there ongoing conflict? This can cause a road a roadblock in seeking reconciliation. And also something to think about is, does your husband ask forgiveness from you? Is that something that you've established in your marriage? And again, this is something that you really need to communicate about. Really a hard, it's hard, right? Like to seek forgiveness, you're so vulnerable and there's so much trust that um, has to be there. So establish those helpful conversations and you know, maybe a, a good way to kickstart that is, can we talk about how we resolve conflict in our marriage? I want to follow your lead in reconciliation and then follow his lead. And I think um, we all need to work on this. I need to work on this because I'm having trouble being humble when we have conflicts. Saying things like that can really just lay it out there and uh, might be a good step towards um, working through this. Also, really great series on forgiveness is Milton Vincent. I think it's uh, is it Cornerstone Bible Church. I don't know if you guys know that, but it's, I think it's an eight part in series. Riverside, not in, in Riverside, not in Marietta. Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> not that one. So it's such a great series. Um, it's on the internet. You can find it. So listen to it, and um, I think it's really helpful. Great, thank you. Um, oh, just. Okay. Toss in another proverb. I love Proverbs. Proverbs 11, 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. And wisdom is the word applied. And so when we're being yeah. humble and we go and, and ask forgiveness, we're being wise. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Um, Tracy, going to about our home and our kids, how can we raise grateful kids rather than entitled kids? Well, I think I touched on this also when I was speaking, and I just want to say, you need to go read the book for yourself. I, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'll say a little bit about it, but this is the book that I was referring to, The Grateful Kids in an Entitled World by Kristen Welch. And like I said, not everything in this book, this is like not the Bible, right? A lot of hers, her ideas are preferences, um, but they are based on biblical wisdom, um, and she gives really practical examples starting at, with toddlers all the way through teenagers. Um, so she'll give you the principle and then she'll give you practical examples of how you can apply that in your home. I didn't like go through like the Bible and use and do every example. I did what fit our home. But it just gave me a really good place to start um, because I talked to you about like we were just complaining a lot in our home and we're having a hard time figuring out how to break that. Um, but I put, it starts with us, right? Um, and that's what I talked about when I spoke last, is that we can't teach what we don't know and what we're not practicing. We have to model it in our home. It starts really young with them just saying please and thank you, right? Um, really simple. We, you even use it like with sign language with kids that are nonverbal, um, the please and thank you. Um, that just starts with the heart of thankfulness, right? That not everything is just given to you, but you realize that it's a blessing. Your parents are blessing you and you're thankful for it. And so you're saying thank you or you're saying please. 
Um, we share with one another when it isn't fair. I think that's another one with kids. Um, I think as moms, we always try to make everything fair and everything's just not always fair and everything's not always fair in this world. So they need to learn that really early on. So sometimes you're gonna ask them to prefer one another even though it doesn't seem like, um, like, it, it, like it's a fair situation. Um, we don't say yes to every re request of our kids. And I think that goes to the whole philosophy um, of parenting. I'll talk about that in a minute. The last one, I, practical thing I had was that we open up our home and share everything that we have. Um, our resources, our time, our bedrooms. I mean, my kids have kids sleeping in their bedrooms even now um, for ministry events every week and they just can't go in their room. And to them, they're always like, oh, I can't get into my room. And it's like, what a great opportunity for you to share. And it's not your room, actually. You're just using it for this time period, right? For this season. It's daddy's and it's his home and he's seeing to use it that way tonight. And so we're just gonna be respectful of that. Um, but back to philosophy of parenting, um, the decisions that we make every day with our kids is based on really what we believe to be true, right? Whether or not we've sat down and given it a lot of thought. So I just wanted to encourage everybody to sit down and give thought to really why you're doing what you're doing um, and the commands and the things that you're asking of your kids, like why are you asking those things? Don't just continue to react to the situation, but actually plan um, and think about why you do what you do. And I think that has a lot, that goes into a lot about um, just making grateful kids, making kids that have eyes for other people and not just themselves. Um, it's just a reminder that our aim is not to make our kids happy. Right? They're not actually owed happiness. Um, that's very contrary to what our world is teaching our kids. Um, the world's filled with really hard things, right? And they need to learn to be able to deal with those things. And just a reminder that God uses disappointments and discouragement to draw us closer to him. So our aim is to train them as unto the Lord and in his ways. So we need to train them to be hard workers, to be others-minded, that the world doesn't revolve around them, um, to have a servant's heart, to teach them ownership and responsibility. Um, that's even just a simple thing of like cleaning up your toys and not coloring on the walls and not ripping up their books. Like those are all ways when they're really little that you can teach them to have ownership and responsibility over their things. Uh, we instill faithfulness and commitment Right When they say they're gonna do something, like go put on your shoes, and they say, go put on, yes, mommy, I'm gonna go put on my shoes, and then they don't do it. All right, there's a consequence to that because we would just want them to be faithful and realize that what they say when they say yes, like that needs to be a yes. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, I think when it all boils down to it, the philosophy of parenting is to teach our kids really to be content, right, instead of happy. Um, real contentment doesn't fluctuate in circumstances. Paul says in Philippians 4, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he's saying that in relation to contentment, right? Um, he's talking there about living in plenty or living in want. If you look at the section right before Philippians 4.13. So it doesn't matter, he's saying, if you have everything or if you have nothing, but he can maneuver in any of those situations because he has Christ. And I think that's what we need to remember. Um, and that's what we wanna teach our kids. And I think that contentment, if you can teach them that, um, if you can model that, then they're gonna be a lot more thankful. Um, 
But the book really goes into like this whole mindset of our culture. It's so good. It talks about a handout mentality, the goodie bag mentality, participation awards, um, constant praise and recurring rescue. Those are ways in which we actually inhibit our kids from being thankful. And she just goes into the whole philosophy behind those things. And those are just everywhere in our culture. And we're working through those things with our kids all the time. And she's really practical. So I'm not going to go into that because that's a whole nother... Hour. Yeah. <laughs> so go read the book. <laughs> when was it published? I think it's pretty recent, actually. Yeah. I love it. Perfect. Okay, well, kind of along those same lines, Beth, would you explain to us the happy heart concept? Um, and this person said that my husband doesn't get it, and I'm not good at explaining it. So... <laughs> So maybe you could give us a little way to explain that. <laughs> I don't have a cute song if that's what you're hoping for. But I know. I know I should make one up. Okay. It's, it's a put off, put on. So if, if you look at some scriptures, you could start with Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining and arguing. That's your put off. Um, and then 1 Thessalonians 5.16, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you. And then you can take it a step farther and go to Proverbs 15.13, which says a joyful heart makes a cheerful face. And so then you've gone all the way through 15.13. Uh, I know. So you have a complaining heart and you need to choose to be happy. And it really should show all the way onto your face. And so I know when kids were little, sometimes we would even say, oh, you need to change your face. You know, show me a happy face, um, things like that. But that's, that's the whole rationale for, you know, happy heart is you put off the complaining and the arguing and the selfishness and you need to put on the be joyful, always um, be thankful in all circumstances. And I think by changing your face, it actually helps you remember that happiness is a choice. Um, because they're making the choice to smile, even though it's not yet maybe feeling it in their heart. And that we don't, we're not giving, no matter how we are feeling on the inside, we're going to smile on the outside. And that's a choice. And I think eventually it gets into their heart of like, I mean, how long can you smile without just like getting over yourself and saying, okay, I'm just going to choose to be happy. It does actually works. And you're not being fake. I think some moms are like, oh, I don't want to teach my child to be a Pharisee. If they're not happy, they're not happy. Like, no, we're going to trust God's word and act on it regardless of how I feel. So it's that early training in that. Yeah, self-control over your emotions. And, and using terminology like happy heart, there's nothing magical in those words. You could say, do all things without grumbling and complaining. You can use scripture. And I really think it's important to use that scripture either paired with saying happy heart or instead of it before you start throwing out terminology that the kids and maybe some adults in your life don't really understand. Like, what does that really mean? So it's important to have to lay the foundation of scripture and use it um, in addition to, yeah, the jingle. (laughs) 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 We're looking forward to that. (laughs) Um, Betsy, with the holidays coming up, um, what are my husband's and my responsibilities towards extended family get-togethers? How can we communicate if we wish to make changes that we believe are better for our family? The struggle is real. 
this is a well-timed question, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, man. Um, I have to say, um, this week, Katie and Josh and the kids are packing up, and they're going to Idaho to be with Mark and Pam for the week for Thanksgiving. And I love it that my grandkids get to go spend time with Mark and Pam, who are my friends, the amazing grandparents. And what more would you want for your daughter and son-in-law and, and kids to have the opportunity to go spend that time with them? But I have to say it like it hurts a little, right? Because they're not with me. Even though we have this amazing family get-together planned for, for Thursday with Mike and Alyssa and Dan and Victoria and Alyssa's parents. So just know when you aren't with your parents, it's going to sting a little. But moms uh, that are my generation, age, you know, grandmas, you have to let your kids leave and cleave. Right, they they're their own family now, and so you have to be okay with that. It's healthy for them to be their own family. You shouldn't expect them to always be in your home for every holiday. It's selfish, and so send um, send your parents to talk to me, and we can have a cry about it, <laughs> hold each other's hands. But then, so then, what do you do? I I think you're responsible to honor your parents, and so that's really important. But you don't have to obey them. And I think guilt is a powerful thing. And if you're under this spell of guilt, you and your husband need to work through that. And I think the way to communicate it to your parents is to communicate it kindly and give them plenty of time to make plans and maybe even help them make plans to do something else. And it could be a holiday or it can be maybe your birthday instead of, or your kid's birthday. Like maybe you and your family want to go to Disneyland without you know, the whole 20 of you going, maybe just, you know, four or five of you going or, or something like that. So be kind to your parents, but draw a firm line. And I would rely on my husband a lot to help communicate that if there's a problem with it. Let him, um, let him take that on and have the wave hit him rather than you. And um, yeah, I, I honestly, I think when Greg and I do premarital, this is one of the things we talk about with couples mm -hmm. is like, Start planning and thinking about this because it is a real struggle. And make sure that you're united together. Um, a lot of times you'll, your parent will try to pit you against each other. Oh, yeah, I know that you know your husband, he's really the one that wants to not be with us. And it's like you're like, oh, yeah, I would really want to rather be with you. Don't do that. <laughs> right? If you've decided together beforehand um, that this is your decision, then make sure you stick to it. I know that can be really hard. Um, especially when, you know, the moms come and or grandmas and they want to really dig in and just make sure that you understand how much this is hurting them. Um, just be really, really careful with that just to really represent one another well and talk well of one another um, in front of the other parent that isn't yours. Um, I was also going to say, I know your kids are little and they're babies, but just know up and out. Mm -hmm. One day, they're not going to be with you. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> so, be preparing your heart even now for yeah. that. I think it's really good to cherish yeah. those moments you have with them, but don't make that your end all. My parents were great at this. They always release us to do what, what we want to do, and it makes us want to hang out with them even more. Mm -hmm. right? We don't always hang out with them on the holidays, but we really choose times um, to really make it just about them and make it special for them, like you were saying, not on those days, but on other days. And they've done really good about getting their own life. 
So I'm learning this now because my kids are getting up there and they have their own schedules now. And just learning that I need to have my own life now. Um, I need to make friends again. And you know, spend time doing things for other people outside my home again. And that's just such another new season and a great opportunity. So be looking forward to that. It's different, but it's not sad. Um, it's just different. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Okay, we only have a few more minutes, so I'm like kind of looking through here to see. Um, there was a there was a couple questions about difficult children, so maybe you want to address those, um, encouraging a difficult child to obey and um, dealing with a child that may be prone to anger. Um, uh, so maybe some of those difficult things do you want to share? So kids that are prone to anger, I think there's a couple things going on. Um, emotional regulation or control. Some kids just get it naturally. The Lord blessed them with a pleasant and easy personality. Some kids not so much. And you can spank them for being disobedient, but there's some kids you'd be spanking them all day, every day. So you need to have some other tools in your toolbox to train them to use self-control. And I would start small, and you have to sort of analyze the situation a little bit and say, okay, what's triggering them? What can we do? Like, take a step back before they get angry. Now, that's the time to say, okay, okay, your toast fell on the floor, but we can get a new one. You don't need to get angry. Or even before that, say, okay, you're going to have toast for breakfast this morning. Remember, if it falls on the floor, you don't scream or tantrum because we can always, and, you know, get a new piece or, you know, help them learn um, to not tantrum. Mm -hmm. I know that was a silly example, but just like really start small and help them yeah. learn to um, um, know that something might come, some situation mm -hmm. might come and you can deal with it. You have the tools and you've talked them through and practiced it. So it's a lot of formative instruction. Role play was a great tool in our toolbox. So at a time when they're not angry, to act out a situation where one of them becomes angry and you acted out the wrong way and then you acted out the right way, like using the verse and what they should do and then asking them a couple evaluative questions like, so which one worked out better? And you know, which one does the Lord want us to do? Um, was really helpful to us. And then as soon as your kid can memorize the verse, to, to, to pick a verse, and that's the verse then that you're gonna use like every time. So some favorites are Proverbs 29, 11, a fool always loses his temper, but the wise man holds it back. Or Proverbs 29, 11, a person's wisdom yields patience, that we wanna be wise and patient, and those two go together. Um, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. So those are some, some keys in our house. Make a big deal about when they have victory over their anger. Mm -hmm. Like, make a big deal about yeah. it and celebrate. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Okay, what was the other one? Oh, did you want difficult child difficult. obedience one? Yeah. Okay, I, I have difficult children. But we're all difficult. I mean, it's just in different ways. It's just how, how does it manifest itself in your kid? Um, I think being consistent, like absolutely consistent, and the more defiant you think your child is, then the more consistent um, you need to be. Um, 
So there are times when a child's having trouble learning something and you need to set aside whatever you're trying to do, like clear your agenda to make time to train your child. I think sometimes we have all the things that we wanna do, even ministry or things in our home and house projects, but our child needs training and that's not on a schedule. And so we need to choose to then set aside the things that we wanna get done because the Lord is calling us to train um, our kids. So just for an example, I had a season like this when one of my children was having trouble learning to sleep in their bed and I felt like I was just disciplining all the time. And um, I, I was convinced this child had like the lowest IQ in the history of mankind because they would get up 10 times every night. And yeah. So I, I was getting frustrated because you put your kids to bed and you have things you need to do. That's, when, that's your go time when you're gonna get ready for the next day. But I found that I needed to set aside what I needed to do and I would sit outside of this child's bedroom every night, probably for an hour or two, so that I could help train them to stay in bed. And this went on for much longer than I thought it should, but that's just what the Lord had for me. And I think the way the Lord um, helped train my child was for me to be diligent and not have competing priorities with it at the same time. Been there, done that. Good. Yeah. Yeah, that's have. so good. There was a picky eater question, and I also said like that's the, with the picky eating. Like a lot of times, we just have to stop at meal times and actually physically sit there with them. And I think as moms, we don't always just want to. That time is very consuming, and time that we don't always necessarily quote unquote have. But you need to make the time because it's really important to train them, um, and that's a great tool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to roll my picky eater answer with this other one is that is choose the right time to train. Like I, I worked on picky eating. Um, not that my kids are that bad with it, but we worked on that at lunchtime. I didn't want to turn dinner into the battlefield. And so I would introduce those yucky foods. We would have broccoli at lunch, not at dinner. And so I think with training for other behaviors, you know, choose the right time to work on that. Yeah, picky eating, we um, only let our kids have a few things that they didn't like. And so you could only pick three, pick your worst three and everything else you just had to eat. So, and so sometimes I'd have them list their three, then this is when they're three and four and five. And sometimes then if they're like, ooh, I don't like this, say, well, is it better or worse than broccoli? And so making them choose to accept to eat it. So nope, I wanna, I wanna keep broccoli as my low one, so I guess I'll eat this. <laughs> I love the negotiated. It's good. <laughs> I kind of I want to be in Beth's house. I know. It sounds like she had a lot of fun training. So I, I also, you. I think it's an authority issue. Sorry, back to the picky eating, but I yeah. think that it's an authority issue at that point, And it's a really good time. Like my kids started eating around about five months. They got teeth really early. And so it's a really good opportunity to train them that you're in charge. And when mommy asks you to eat it, these things, you need to eat them and say, yes, mom. Um, and don't be unrealistic, right, with those expectations. Um, I also didn't let my kids have control over their spoon. Maybe you think I'm too controlling. But when they were that little, like I actually sat and spoon fed them. And then by the time they were about nine to 10 months old, they could actually, they've learned how to actually feed themselves without just being the, you know, yeah, finger painting with their food and putting it in their hair and throwing it on the ground, like, because I physically just sat there and I think it just showed them like, this is how we eat. And this is how we eat in a organized, not messy way. And it was so helpful when we went to other people's houses, 
right? Because you notice when you go to other people's houses, all your bad habits, don't you? And so you're training them really not just for mealtime in your own home, but when you're out at other people's houses or when you go to, you could actually go to a restaurant with toddlers, I promise you, if you've trained them to sit at the table and to actually um, not be super messy with their food, but intentional with it. That's great. Establishing authority, um, showing them that you're the authority is great. And Betsy, we had one last little question for you because Betsy's, Betsy's a teacher in a classroom. So could you um, tell us what you've seen in those kids in the classroom who have been trained to respect authority and those who have not? It's the very Keep last talking. question. It's Wait. the very last question well, she's on looking... yours. On yours. Okay. Oh, find it? Under your name. Under my name. Okay, hang on a second. Well, she's looking for the answer. I did have, I remember Zoe's first grade teacher during parent conference. Actually, we spent the entire time and she asked me questions. She's like, I don't understand how your kid is obedient and how she actually does what she's asked. And that just is like totally a new revelation to me. Like, can you explain to me how you accomplished that? Because she had a nine-month-old. Mm -hmm. And we spent, I did tell her about spanking, which was kind of scary because I don't want her to <laughs> call the authorities on me. Um, but just working through it with her, like, she was just really like, what? I never thought about that. So it was a really good opportunity to share the gospel mm -hmm. and to share the value of the Bible and biblical things with her. Found it. Okay, I should have numbered my pages. So I think it's, for me, easy to spot kids that have been trained to respect authority. And I have to say, first of all, it's not a schooling, like where you school your kids situation. It really comes from the home. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen kids in all kinds of um, schooling situations that are respectful and some that are not respectful. And so keep in mind, I teach second grade. So I'm you know, usually around seven and eight-year-olds, every once in a while, six-year-old. So when I see kids stop and look when an adult starts talking to them, no matter who the adult is, I see that kids know how to respect adults. When they know who the adult is, do they greet them without being prompted? That also is modeled from you. They see you saying hello to people, um, even if it's not your best friend. If you're at Target and you see someone, hmm, I think maybe they go to our church, stop and say hi. Your kids will pick up on that. Uh, what follows that is responding right away when kids are asked to do something. Do they do it immediately? And I have students, I see kids that do right away. They'll stop doing what I asked them to stop doing or they will immediately follow um, an instruction. Do they follow rules as they get older, even if they think the rules are dumb? Do they follow them? Like, that doesn't apply to me, I don't really have to, but, but kids who respect authority will follow those rules. And part of respecting authority is not acting unruly in public. So how does that look? Is running around when adults are talking or working? Are your kids, are, do you see kids running around and um, acting wild? Throwing things, not cleaning up after themselves? So I'm not talking about playfulness, because I think that's really mm -hmm. important. But there's a time and a place to play. And that needs to be taught and practiced at home and especially outside the home. That's great. Thank you. Anybody have any last words of wisdom that you want to throw out? <laughs> Can we thank our panel? For coming? And so
just so that you all know, we will have another panel at the end of next semester. So if you have questions in your mind, um, write them down and give them to us. It doesn't have to necessarily go with our topics, you know. Maybe it's just something that you, you know, need older women to talk through. And don't forget that you have mentor moms at your tables that are willing to chat with you and sit with you and help you through difficult things. So um, thank you all for coming and have a great holiday and we'll see you in January.